Hey friends, Alan Duty here, preaching pastor at New Life. We're delighted to bring you this sermon from our Sunday gathering. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you and enjoy the following message. My high school basketball coach was one tough cookie. I think he believed in us, which is why he pushed us so hard. At least that's what I've always told myself. He had this saying, you win as a team, you lose as a team, you run as a team. And what that meant is that if one guy messed up a play in practice or made a bad pass or was goofing around, the entire team was disciplined. The entire team had to run. And I think that's because our coach understood that at the end of the game, the box score doesn't show who ran the wrong play. It doesn't show who made a bad pass. It doesn't show who gave a half-hearted effort on defense. It just shows the final score, who won and who lost. And in basketball, like all team sports, you win as a team and you lose as a team. And so we were also disciplined as a team, not as individuals. Well, today in Joshua 7, we're going to see that same concept worked out among God's people. They won battles together, they lost battles together, and they experienced the blessing or the discipline of God together. Now, chapter six, if you were here last week or if you've read that before, it ends on a really high note. Israel easily conquers the city of Jericho through careful obedience to God's commands. And the conquest of the promised land is off to this very great start. Unfortunately, chapter seven begins with the ominous word, but. We learn in verse one that not everyone obeyed God's commands. Akan, the son of Carmi, took some of the devoted things. And so I want to remind you back in chapter six of what God warned the people. Take a look at the screen. God says this to Joshua and through Joshua, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So God's instructions are very clear. Everything in the city is to be completely destroyed except for the precious metals. And those things are to be deposited into the treasury of the Lord. So if anyone took these things, then Israel as a whole would be disciplined they would be held accountable for the trouble that would come upon the nation because God's people win together and they lose together and they would be disciplined together. So the previous chapter prepared us for what we are about to learn. The only thing that remains to be seen is exactly what form trouble is going to take since we know for a fact that God will keep his word. Now at this point, Joshua the leaders of the people, they are all unaware of Akan's sin. But there's more at play here than just what's going on with that one man and his sin. 
you take a look at verse two, you notice that Joshua sends out spies to scout out the little town of Ai, which is their next target in the conquest of the promised land. But do you notice that in verse two, there are exactly zero references to God? There's no indication that Joshua prayed, that he asked for guidance, that he asked for direction or blessing or anything. He just does what any normal military leader would do in this situation. And you would think after the highly unusual and very detailed instructions that God gave for the taking of Jericho, that Joshua and the leaders would think God probably has a very specific way that he wants us to go about taking this outpost. Let's ask him for direction. But they don't. Just like you and me, they seem to conclude that they really only need God's help with the big things in life. That with all of the seemingly little stuff, like taking the small military outpost in the sticks, they don't really need God's help. They've got this on their own. You see that attitude in verse three when the spies essentially report, don't bother sending the whole army. A couple regiments will do the trick. They'll be back before dinner. But the mission is a total disaster. This small military force at AI easily repels Israel and ends up killing 36 men in the retreat. And here's the worst part. Take a look at verse five. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Do you remember that phrase? It was used twice in chapter two and chapter five of the Amorites and the Canaanites. When they heard of all that God had done at the Red Sea in drowning and taking out the entire Egyptian army, when they heard and saw what God did at the Jordan River, their hearts melted and became as water. They thought, we're next. This is coming for us. They're scared to death. They have no more spirit in them. But now Israel is the defeated army and Israel are the ones who are scared to death. Well, 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 how the turntables have turned. So you can picture Joshua and the elders back at camp reminiscing about their victory at Jericho. When the first messengers returned from the battlefield, sweaty, dirty, bloodied, and tell them that they got run out of town and suffered a lot of casualties. Well, Joshua and the elders can't believe it. They tear their clothes, they put dust on their heads, they fall to the ground in mourning, and then and only then do they do what they should have done at first. They fall down before the Lord, they cry out to him until the evening. And like we often do, Joshua seems to blame God for the defeat. Now, don't get me wrong. He never comes out and says directly, God, this is your fault. But he certainly implies that it is God's fault. Look at verses seven through nine. What is Joshua essentially saying here? Why did you bring us here to destroy us? We could have just stayed on the other side of the river. What are you going to do about your reputation now that your people have been defeated? He seems to put it all back on God. And that's just like us. When things go wrong in our lives, we're like, where are you, God? 
I thought you were good. I thought that you cared about me. I thought we had a deal. I worship you and you make everything go right in my life. Well, church, I think we're so quick to pound on the prosperity gospel, the belief that as long as we obey God, as long as we worship him, then God will keep us healthy and wealthy that will get the desires of our heart. The Bible never teaches that. And so that becomes a lot of Christians' favorite punching bag. Talk about the prosperity gospel, we make fun of it. But when we go through trials in our own lives, when life gets tough because we live in a fallen and cursed world or because of our own sin, our real beliefs get squeezed out of us like toothpaste from a tube. We can say all day that the prosperity gospel is heresy. We can say that we don't believe it. But if we start questioning God's goodness and power every time that life gets tough, maybe we've bought into the prosperity gospel more than we want to admit. Joshua and the elders never stopped to consider that maybe they brought these consequences on themselves through sin. And had they inquired of God, had they prayed before they did anything else, surely God would have said to them, do not attempt to take AI. There is sin in the camp. I will not go with you. I will not bless you until you repent. You will be defeated. Purge the evil from among you first. But they don't do that. They rush ahead, fully confident in their own abilities, believing that they could handle this one on their own. So let's pick up now in verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have been devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up. Consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. How great is God's response to Joshua? I mean, you feel bad for the guy because it's Joshua. He's such a great man of faith, but it's kind of funny because it's not you. When God tells him to get up, like we've all done before, Joshua blames God for his problems. He goes on and on, not so much praying, but more worrying in God's direction. And God tells him, get up. And then he makes it plain, Israel has sinned. That's the problem here. 
God says, this isn't my fault, this is your fault. And if you had asked beforehand, I would have told you that and you wouldn't have been defeated and those men would still be alive. God is perfect. So whenever there's a problem, it can always be traced back to us and not to him. Oftentimes our problems stem from the fact that Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, bringing a curse upon our world, making it a difficult place full of trials to live. But friends, sometimes our problems can be traced back to our own sin, our own disobedience, our own rebellion against God and his rule in our lives. And that was the case here. Specifically, the problem is that Israel, and you notice again, God is holding the entire nation accountable for the sin. Israel has taken some of the devoted things. Look again at the end of verse 11. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Now, the way that that's described might remind you of what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. In the early days of the church, a lot of believers were selling their belongings, selling their possessions, selling property, and then giving money to the church. There was a lot of believers that did that and Ananias and Sapphira saw that and they also sold a piece of property and gave some of the proceeds to the church. That was a very generous thing to do. The problem is that Ananias and Sapphira lied and they said they gave all of the money that they got from the sale, when in reality, they only gave part of it, presumably to look good in front of others so that they would be praised for what they had done. And so Peter confronts them and asks, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Ananias and Sapphira are struck dead on the spot for their sin. Here in Joshua 7, we have something similar taking place. Akan took things that rightfully belonged to God. Remember, he had commanded that everything in Jericho be devoted to destruction or be put into the treasury of the Lord. But then he lies about it. Maybe not directly, maybe not to anybody's face, but he withheld the truth about what he did and others were going to be held accountable for his actions. So God explains what this means in verse 12. Take a look there again. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. Now that's not new information. As we saw back in chapter six, right before the assault on Jericho, God warned them that if they took the devoted things, then they would make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. Like any good father, God requires obedience and he warns about the consequences of disobedience beforehand. And then God adds this in verse 12 again, take a look there. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Now in chapter one, God promised to be with Israel but he promised to be with Israel only as long as they were faithful to him and as long as they obeyed his commands. So you remember when Joshua encountered the commander of the army of the Lord and he asked him, are you for us or for our adversaries? You remember what the commander said? No. 
neither. He is not for Israel or for Israel's enemies. He is for anyone and everyone who is faithful to and devoted to the Lord because he is the commander of the army of the Lord. That's who he is. So in verse 13, God tells Joshua, who apparently is still on the ground with dust on his head, to get up and to consecrate the people. In other words, to purify themselves, to stand in the presence of the Lord. Because remember the principle, you win as a team, you lose as a team, you run as a team. They were going to stand together to be disciplined together. There are devoted things among them. And so the way that God says this is going to go down is the entire nation is going to be brought out. And then by casting lots, a tribe is going to be taken. And then a clan is going to be taken. And then a household is going to be taken. And then each man in the household is going to be taken until there's only one man left standing. That man and his family are going to be devoted to destruction. Why? Verse 15 because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Now, of course, God could have just revealed to Joshua and the elders, Akan is the one who did this. He's got the loot hidden in his tent. But he doesn't. And he doesn't because he wants to make a very public example of Akan for what happens when we rebel against God, when we disobey his commands and we sin. Let's pick up in verse 16. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Akan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Akan, my son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Akan answered Joshua, truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them and see they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. It's a pretty tense section, isn't it? You picture the whole nation of Israel up at dawn, all million plus, couple million people standing out there, fully purified. Akan has buried himself in the back. He's on the third deck, last row of Kyle Field, (laughs) quivering, just hoping that somehow his name doesn't get called. But his tribe is called, and then his clan is called, and then his household is called, and then he is called out. Look at Proverbs 16, 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. There was no hiding from this. With the entire nation looking on, Joshua implores Akan to give glory to God and confess what he did. And Akan comes clean. To his credit, he does not deny it. 
He doesn't shift blame. He doesn't make any excuses. Look again at verse 20. He says, when I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, listen to this, then I coveted them and took them. What's happening here? I think one of the reasons that we tend to sin in the same ways over and over again is because we don't fully understand the nature of temptation. I want you to think about what happened in the Garden of Eden when Eve was tempted. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want you to look at that progression. She saw, she desired, she took, she ate. See, desire, take, eat. James chapter one explains this in greater detail. Look on the screen. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. I want to leave that up for just a minute so you can look at it while we think through it. What happens when we're tempted? James says that all of us have these desires that reside within us. These desires that live deep down, some of which we are aware and some of which we're not fully aware of, but they are there and they are powerful. And then we find ourselves in a situation or we put ourselves in a situation where if we choose to do so, we could fulfill those desires. And that's when desire conceives and gives birth to sin. You see, what is tempting to us is tempting precisely because we already desire it. Nothing is tempting to us that we don't desire. So the desire has to be there first before you can ever be tempted by something. And then what's changed is that we are now in a position that we've put ourselves in or that we find ourselves in where we could fulfill those desires if we choose to do so. And when we make the decision to fulfill those desires, that's when desire conceives and gives birth to sin. That's the moment that temptation gives way to thought or word or action. And then what James says is that when sin is fully grown, that is once the sin is over, once it's been completed, it brings forth death. The wages of sin is death. It does not pay out in any other currency. So here's the deal. Akan was not the victim of unfortunate circumstances. 
where he stumbled upon some silver and some gold and a coat. And all of a sudden, he valued those things more than he valued God and obedience to him. No, the sad reality is that the reason he was tempted to steal those things and then to lie about it is because those desires were already there. He already valued those things more than he valued God. And then when the situation presented itself, he was lured and enticed by what? By his own desire and he sinned. So friends, we have to stop saying things like me and my girlfriend slipped up last night. No, you didn't. You have desires living in you. And when you are lured and enticed by your own desire because you put yourself in that situation or you find yourself in that situation, that is when sin conceives and gives birth to death. That's what happens to us. Our language about sin is far too watered down. Friends, most of the time, it's not that we want bad things. Sometimes we do want sinful things. But most of the time we want good things. It's just that we want them too much and we want them right now. Jericho was the only city in the entire book of Joshua that was commanded by God to be completely devoted to destruction. In every other case, the Israelites were allowed by God to take and enjoy some of the plunder. If only Akan had been willing to wait a little longer, he could have had what he wanted. But just like us, he wanted it too much and he wanted it right now. Let's pick up in verse 22. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Accor. I want you to just put yourself in Akan's place for a moment. In spite of God's warning, you coveted and you stole and you lied. And for a little while, you thought you'd actually gotten away with it. But nobody fools God. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. And so after you've been called out in front of the whole nation, the men bring back the things that you stole and they lay them down in front of all Israel and before the Lord. And the next thing you know, you and your family are being marched down into a valley 
a valley that from this day forward will be known as the Valley of Accor, the Valley of Trouble. And everybody is crying. Your wife and your kids are crying. Your extended family is crying. Your friends are crying. All the moms and dads and brothers and sisters of those soldiers who died at AI are crying. And you realize in that moment, I did this. This is all because of my sin. I am going to die. My entire family is going to die because of my sin, because I wanted a coat and some money. And then you're down there in the valley and you hear Joshua's voice, the last voice you're ever gonna hear in this world saying, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. How long do you suppose it takes to kill a family by throwing rocks at them? What do you suppose that sounds like? What do you suppose that looks like? After a while, there are no more screams and cries coming from the pile of rocks. And so they light it on fire. I would guess that anyone who was there that day never forgot that horrifying scene and the terrible wages of sin. But just in case that pile of stones remained there for generations. Now I want to remind you of the lyrics to Jordan Coughlin's song, All I Have is Christ. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. My friends, we are all a con, every one of us. We have all sinned and tried to cover it up, hoping that we could enjoy the pleasure of sin and worship God. Do you think that if Akon knew that his sin would result in the death of 36 men and the hearts of Israel melting in fear and Joshua questioning God and God threatening to withdraw his presence, and him and his entire family being executed, that he would have done what he did? Of course not. Of course not. But that's exactly how it works. Satan always tells us the exact same lie. You will not surely die. But we will. Because the wages of sin is death. We all deserve a con's fate. We deserve death and eternal punishment for our sinful rebellion against God, for bringing trouble upon ourselves and bringing trouble upon everyone else that our sin affects. But friends, the good news is that Jesus stepped in and accepted the death sentence in our place. He came and took our place, suffered and died and rose again, although it was not him, but Adam and Eve and their descendants who sinned and rebelled against God. So as we close, I want you to look at Romans chapter five, verses 17 through 19. I want you to see the striking parallels between this and Joshua seven. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. On that awful day in the Valley of Trouble, there was no mediator to stand in a con's place. But thanks be to God, he sent his only begotten son to stand in your place and mine, that he, Jesus of Nazareth, the only perfect man who ever lived, would take upon the sin and the judgment that we deserved, all of it, and rise victorious over sin and death and everything else so that you and I could be justified, sanctified, adopted into God's family, and when he returns, glorified with him forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I think there are many times where we read about people like Akan and we're, we're tempted to have these thoughts. Like, how could you do such a thing? When we ourselves have sinned in similar ways or different ways, but we ourselves have sinned and brought trouble on ourselves, on our families, our friends, our church. God, it's not natural for us to think of sin in the way that you describe it in your word. We don't think of it as deadly. Problematic, maybe. Unfortunate, maybe. We speak of it in terms of mistakes, slipping up, struggling. But we don't use the language that you use in your word often. Because I think for so many of us, and maybe all of us at certain times, we just don't believe it's as serious as you say that it is. But it's so serious that you had to send your one and only son. There was only one way for us to be saved from the consequences and the power of our sin. So God, I pray this morning that anyone here who has not yet repented of sin and come to Christ in faith, that they would do that today. Grant them repentance. Grant them faith this morning that they might turn to Jesus and receive forgiveness. Father, for the rest of us, especially those of us who have been walking with you for many, many years and maybe have begun to justify certain sin in our life or downplay certain sin in our life, I pray that you would remind us afresh how serious it is, what it cost, and how we are called to live in light of the glorious gospel of grace. 
We thank you for your word to us this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from New Life Baptist Church in College Station, Texas. For more information or to support our ministry, visit us online at newlifecs.net. Thank you.